Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the prophetic ministry of Elijah and then Elisha. This morning, our scripture text is 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, to wake, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, forgive me if you've heard this story before. It was the summer of 1995, and love was in the air. I was newly engaged to my now wife, Stephanie, and I had something I was very much looking forward to. I was looking forward to taking my fiance to our um, family vacation to the beach for the first time. Um, if you know me at all, you know that my happy place is the beach. My family would go to the beach every summer growing up, and I could not wait to take my fiance with us there for the very first time. And so the day came for us to go to the beach, and um, we were getting ready, and uh, we weren't getting out the door as quickly as I, I would have liked. Um, but we were endeavoring and trying, and we finally got on the road, and then the traffic was a little busier, a little more hectic than I had hoped, and so we didn't get to the beach according to the timing that I had in mind, but we got there, and we put our stuff in the house, and, and so I said to Stephanie, okay, let's get our stuff in, let's put it inside, let's get settled in. I'd love to take a walk on the beach, and she did not know that for years I had imagined, even dreamed, about taking my wife or wife-to-be on a walk on the beach for the first time. It was like something that I had envisioned for many years. And she said, you know, I really don't want to go to the beach. It's been a long day. 
I'm tired, the traffic was bad, can we just settle in and relax and we'll do that tomorrow? I said, we're not gonna do that tomorrow, okay. Um, this is something that I would like to do today. Is it too much to ask to take my fiance on a walk to the beach? And she said, you know, I really don't want to, but okay. And so as we, this is an absolute, this is a true story, Stephanie, can agree to this. And so as we're walking out, she's like, it's dark. You know, we really, we were not gonna be able to see much on the beach. Do you really wanna go? I was like, yeah, I do wanna go to the beach, okay. <laughs> so we get out there and, and she was right. It, it was a little dark. It was darker than I, than I had thought. So we get out to the beach and we're going on the boardwalk and she was like, it's a little windy, okay? And, and it was a little windy. I mean, it was like, it was like your face was being sandblasted by the sand <laughs> as it was blowing off the dunes. And so we start talking to each other and I tell her about, I'm excited for what's ahead. And she's like, I can't hear you. Could you speak up? And so I try to tell her and, you know, whisper sweet nothings in her ear. And she said, can we just go inside? I'm like, fine, let's go inside. So we walked inside and I think it's fair to say that life doesn't always meet your expectations, does it? Um, it went up from there, but life does not always meet your expectations. That's a famous story in my house. Uh, never forget that one. Well, it's safe to say that um, what happened after the showdown on Mount Carmel, it's safe to say that did not meet Elijah's expectations. In fact, what transpired after the showdown on Mount Carmel was shocking and was the last thing that Elijah could have anticipated. Allow me to set the scene. If you remember back to last week, if you were here, Elijah and Ahab and all of Israel and the prophets of Baal had just borne witness to what perhaps was one of the greatest and dramatic presentations of God's power seen anywhere in the Old Testament. If you will recall the context of the showdown on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and Elijah, the context of that was a question as to which God was the true God. Was Yahweh the true God? Or was Baal, the God of the Canaanites, was he the true God? Because as we know in the context of 1 Kings, most of Israel had shifted their allegiance from Yahweh the God of Israel to Baal, the God of the Canaanites. And so God sent Elijah to minister in that context, and so it occurred to Elijah to set up a context, some kind of game or match, if you will, to see who was the true and real God. Now for you sports fans, this kind of reminds me of the origin of the, of the college football playoff, okay? For those of you who are sports fans, for many, many years at the end of every football season, that would launch bowl season. And you would have the Rose Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, the Gator Bowl, the Peach Bowl, all the big bowl games. And after all the bowl games were over, what would happen then? How would we determine a national championship? the sports writers would vote, which seemed very counterintuitive and kind of absurd that it wouldn't be settled on the field. So a number of years ago, there was enough, enough fan pushback that they started an actual playoff. 
to see who was the best and decided on the field. Well, that's what Elijah wanted to do. He wanted to settle it on the field, as it were, to determine once and for all who the real God was, who the most powerful God was, to decisively decide who it was that the people should follow. And if you remember back from last week, if you recall, they went to the top of Mount Carmel and they put up two altars, okay? And so the idea was each side, the prophets of Baal on the one side and Elijah on the other would each pray to their respective God and then the real God and the true God would answer that prayer and would come down with a lightning bolt and destroy and consume the sacrifice. I won't recount the entire story, but we know what happened. The prophets of Baal spent all day long ranting and raving and nothing happened. Elijah prayed and Yahweh God Almighty sends a lightning bolt that just explodes the sacrifice. It blows up the rocks, totally consumes the sacrifice, dries up all the water. It was so dramatic and so amazing that all the people confessed with one voice, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. Okay? What happened after that? The rains came. Life was good. And you would have thought that Ahab would have followed that up by declaring a day of thanksgiving. You would have thought that Ahab would have followed that up and declared a national holiday to celebrate the day that Yahweh proved he was God. But that is not what happened. If you remember the story, Elijah sends Ahab back to Jezreel. Look at your map again. We're not done with our little map here. If you orient yourself with the map, you look at Israel right in the middle of the map in all caps, in bold, you look to the north of that, you look above that, and to your left, to the east, you'll see Mount Carmel. That's where the Lord consumed the sacrifice with that dramatic lightning strike. And then after that, Elijah told Ahab, you better get in your chariot and go back to Jezreel because the rains are coming, and if you don't go back right now, you won't make it there because the roads would be too wet and impassable. And so that's what happens between chapter 18 and 19. Elijah gets in his chariot. He goes from Mount Carmel. He goes south and west. You can see that on their map. And he goes to Jezreel. That's the setting of our passage today. They're in Jezreel. And so when Ahab gets back, he recounts all that happens to Jezebel, his wife. He tells her what the God of Israel did and how dramatic it was and how the people responded and all these things. And what would you expect from Jezebel? You would expect that she would say, well, that's impressive. I guess the God of Israel is the true God. Is that what happened? Absolutely not. You can just imagine in your mind's eye that Jezebel is listening and nodding and seemingly going along with him and then asking him, are you finished? Are you done? And then like slapping him across the face and saying, what are you thinking? Are you crazy? You know, was he able to deceive you? You are really believing Elijah? You're impressed by what happened? I don't know what happened up there 
I don't know what smoke and mirrors Elijah did, but we're not going to worship the God of Israel. Are you kidding me? We are Baal worshipers. You bring Elijah to me, and I'll finish what you couldn't. It's safe to say that Jezebel had a very strong personality, okay? Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. I think the text implies that, like, Ahab is impressed. Ahab thought it was decisive. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Okay, this is a massive non sequitur. If you're Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. After hearing all that Ahab said and what God had done, she said, I swear on oath to God that you're going to be dead in 24 hours and we are going to put a stop to this. And I can assure you that is the very last thing that Elijah, the prophet of God, expected. What did he expect? would naturally follow that incredible victory. What do you think he expected? He expected revival to break out. He expected the entire nation of Israel to repent and turn to the Lord, and that is not what happened at all. It just made Jezebel mad, and she resolved to kill him. Look at verse 3. This is also surprising. Then he, Elijah, then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Now look at your map. The very bottom left corner of your map, that's Beersheba. That's the very southern border of Judah. That's as far south as you could go without leaving the country. So what's going on here? Question for you. How did Elijah go from being like the picture of boldness and courage to being frightened and scared for his life? So much so that he would go that far south. I mean, this is the guy who strode into Ahab's palace a few chapters back to announce the drought, okay? This is the guy that shows back up, okay, and mocks and taunts the prophets of Baal, if you remember back to last week, makes fun of them, shows great courage, and now here he is running for his life, seemingly afraid of Jezebel. What has happened? Well, I would argue that appearances are deceiving. He is running for his life, but he is not afraid of dying. He is afraid of something, but he's not afraid of dying. Later in the text, he prays that God would take his life. Later, he, he really does pray, Lord, take my life from me right now. It would be better to be dead than to live. So he's not afraid for his life. What is he afraid for? He's afraid that if he is publicly executed, that that would undermine everything that was just demonstrated on Mount Carmel. He was afraid that if Jezebel publicly executed him, that it would be a terrible witness for the God of Israel. 
And so he does not want to give her that opportunity, so he runs south, okay? Question for you. Why does he go all the way to Beersheba? And the text is going to imply, if not outright state, that Beersheba was never the goal, that he was going far south of Beersheba. Why did he do that? If he just wanted to flee Jezebel, he could have gone to Judah. I would submit to you that the moment she sought his life, he came up with a new mission. He came up with a new destination. And we'll see what that is. Okay, verses 3 3 through 10. Elijah was afraid. Again, I would submit to you he's afraid for God's glory. He does not want to be killed and bring ill repute on the God of Israel. Then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Question for you, why in the world did he leave his servant there? He's on a journey. He's on a mission. It's not Beersheba. He leaves his servant there when he goes south from Beersheba. What does that indicate? That indicates that Elijah is quitting. He is rolling up his robe, if you will. He's turning it in. He's offering his letter of resignation. He is done with being a prophet. He is quitting the ministry. He is finished. And why is he doing this? Why is he quitting? Because he is so discouraged. He is so despondent. He feels such shame. He feels such responsibility for the fact that revival has not happened, that he is quitting the ministry. Those of us who are in ministry can definitely relate to how Elijah feels. I am on a ministerial list serve. There's a huge um, email list that I'm on with probably a couple hundred PCA ministers. Rarely a week goes by that a man does not post to that list that he is considering leaving the ministry. Um, all of our vocations can be disillusioning and discouraging and difficult, and the ministry is no different. Um, obviously, all kinds of things can happen in the context of, of ministry. Believe it or not, I mean, I'm not saying this facetiously, I'm not saying this tongue-in-cheek, but conflict with parishioners or people upset with the minister for doing this, that, or the other, or the minister making a mistake, you know, the, the minister making a bad choice that, that, you know, has repercussions to the church. I mean, people in the ministry, we, 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 we carry this with significance and great responsibility. And Elijah felt great shame over what did not happen following the showdown on Mount Carmel. He's totally overwhelmed, and he's quitting. But before he completely quits, there's one thing he wants to do. Let's look at verses 4 and following. So after he leaves his servant, because he doesn't think he's going to be needing his servant anymore, his assistant, prophets had assistants, After leaving his assistant in Beersheba, verse 4, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came down and sat and came and sat down under a broom tree. We don't know what kind of tree that that was. And he asked that he might die 
saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And so while he's on his way somewhere, he gets so discouraged, so exhausted, so overwhelmed that he just says, I'm done. I'm not even going to make it to my final destination. Just take my life right now. It's over. I would argue that he feels a great sense of shame. You know, when you feel guilt, you feel guilt in response to something you have done. What is shame a response to? Shame is much more personal. Guilt relates to what you've done. Shame relates to what? To who you are. He felt like he was completely unworthy to continue in the prophetic office. He felt like he was such a complete failure. He felt responsible for what had happened. I would ask you, have you ever felt a deep sense of shame? You know, that you just weren't, you know, adequate as a person. Have you ever felt like the world would be a better place without you? Have you ever felt that your spouse or your family would be better off if you weren't around? That's what shame can do. Shame can crush the spirit. And that's what this dear man felt. Verses 5 through 8, so he lies down. He just, he's just overwhelmed with grief and despondency. He slept under a broom tree. Now, this is fascinating. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Verse 7, and now the narrator identifies who this is in particular. And the angel of the Lord. Do you know who the angel of the Lord is? The angel of the Lord is Yahweh himself. The scriptures make a distinction between an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord has all of the attributes of God himself. God is coming in person, if you will, to encourage his prophet. Verse 7, and the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. The angel of the Lord knew that he was on a journey. He was going somewhere, and he was fortifying him for what lay ahead. Verse 8, And Elijah, he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God, I would submit to you, that's where he was going all along. The minute that Jezebel demonstrated that she was not repentant, she was not phased by what happened on Mount Carmel, they were not reinstituting the worship of Yahweh in the northern kingdom, he set his face toward Mount Sinai, deep in the south. So if you look at your map, 
You would go way south from Beersheba and go west, probably to the more of the traditional site of where Mount Sinai is. My map's not big enough to show that. Mount Horeb is the same thing, same place as Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Mount Sinai is the place that the covenant was established. Elijah is going there not to establish the covenant, but to plead the covenant, to make a final accusation on the basis of the covenant. And the Lord strengthened him so he could get there. Elijah was going because he wanted his day in court. He wanted to plead the sanctions of the covenant at the place where the covenant originated. Look at verse 9. There he came to... Now, the ESV doesn't do a good job here because there's a definite article before the Hebrew word cave. The Hebrew literally reads, there he came to the cave. Now, the original reader would have known if he's going back to Sinai and he's going back to the cave, what's the cave a reference to? This is the same cave that Moses went to. This is where the Lord hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, and the same thing's going to happen to Elijah. There's a lot of parallels here between Moses and Elijah, between the giving of the law, the pleading of the law. Forty days and forty nights he went in the strength of the Lord. Moses spent forty days and forty nights on the mountaintop. That's where Elijah is going. He's going to plead the covenant at Sinai. He's going to hide in the cave while he has an experience with the presence of God. Look with me again at verse 9. There he came to the cave. It's the cave of Moses. And he lodged in it. He hid himself in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, and I want you to imagine, this is not, this is not a, an accusatory question. This isn't a condescending question question. This is a very gracious question. God is asking it with much compassion. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel. They have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. Go to panel five. We'll finish our narrative. First Kings 19, verses 11 through 18. And he, Yahweh, said, go out. Stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold... Yahweh passed by, and a great strong wind. I think we should be imagining in our mind's eyes something like a tornado, something incredibly powerful that would achieve this kind of effect. And so he's in Moses' cave, and he's looking out the cave, and he's witnessing these great events that the presence of God is achieving. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great strong wind. Imagine a tornado. It tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. 
But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, you know, achieving great and catastrophic things. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. I think we should be imagining the most intense lightning storm you could imagine. After the earthquake, a fire, these, these lightning bolts everywhere, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him. Okay, it's the same voice that whispered before and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel. They have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, and even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He is discouraged. He's disillusioned. He's despondent, and he's calling on the holy God of Israel to enforce the sanctions of the covenant. He is assuming that since the showdown on Mount Carmel wasn't efficacious and changing the hearts of the people, that it was a failure, that it was over. And that's what discouragement and despondency can do. It can distort our perceptions, okay? It can make us think that things are happening that are not happening. And Elijah was about to find out that his perception was off. He was about to find out that God was very much at work in ways that he couldn't conceive and didn't understand. He was about to find out that God had a plan, and it didn't involve great showdowns or dramatics or anything like that. Verses 15 through 18. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way. In other words, he allowed him his day in court. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel, to be king over Syria, if you're Elijah, you're like, wait, 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 what? What does he have to do with Israel or Judah? Well, the Lord wasn't telling Elijah. In other words, I've got a plan. I'm not telling you all the details. You need to return and do what I tell you to do because I've got great things that I'm doing. He's anointing a king over Israel's enemy. Verse 16. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. God is showing he has sovereignty outside of Israel and over Israel and ultimately over Judah. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, okay, this is the first time we're hearing about Elisha. This is going to be his successor. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehaloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, 
And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Verse 18, yet I will leave, or yet I will keep, or yet I will reserve for myself 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay, three concluding observations, and then we'll be done. Number one, I'll say this. I think it's very telling and greatly encouraging to me how the Lord responds to Elijah in Elisha's pain and discouragement. The Lord does not condemn Elijah. The Lord does not rebuke him or cut him off. What does the angel of the Lord do for Elijah? He touches him. He speaks softly to him. He gives him food and water. He sustains Elijah for this great journey. He knows exactly where Elijah is going, and he accommodates him. He cares for him. I'll tell you this, my friends. The ministry of presence is one of the most powerful gifts you can give to another person. In the midst of their pain and discouragement, you don't have to know the right words. If you're there, that's the most important thing that matters. Years later, they won't remember what you said. I guarantee you, they'll remember that you were there. The power of touch, a hug, just putting your arm over someone's shoulder and telling them, I love you, I'm with you in this, I'm with you all the way. I mean, to say that's life-giving would be a massive understatement. Once we know the full witness of Scripture, who do you think the angel of the Lord is? It's most likely a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who even then was entering in to Elijah's pain and his discouragement. And he obviously does the same with us. Verses 15 through 18, friends, God is not obligated to meet our ministry life expectations. We are not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. And the way the Lord works and how he blesses is up to him. I would imagine some of us are discouraged when we see particular choices our children are making. Or maybe they're not following the Lord like we hope that they would. And we think it's kind of, a, you know, that it's representative of us or something we did or didn't do. The Lord has a plan, okay? And we're called to trust the Lord with it. We're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. And at the end of Elijah's day in court, the Lord softly encouraged him, return, go back. Things are not as they seem. It's not just you and you alone. I've got 7,000 people who are going to stay faithful to me. Minister in my name and leave the results to me. And the last thing I'll say, incredibly encouraging to me as we minister and labor in our wonderful little small church, you know, the Lord often works in small and imperceptible ways. 
Why do you think the Lord said he hides him in a cave and then he passes by through this great tornado that destroys the rocks and rips up the mountainside and then he shows up in an earthquake and then he shows up with great fire and in each of those things it says, and the Lord wasn't in those things. And what comes next? The still, small voice. I think if we look back, the showdown on Mount Carmel wasn't God's idea. That's what Elijah thought would be effective and dramatic and life-changing. And the Lord accommodated Elijah in that. And the Lord is saying to Elijah, I'm not working in those things. I'm working in these ways that you can't understand, ways that are often imperceptible to you. This was being written to people in exile. They were about to come back to the land and rebuild their temple, and it wasn't going to be nearly as impressive as the temple they had before. And the Lord is saying, I am working in these, in these small ways. What do you think the Lord was ultimately preparing God's people for? A Messiah that looked very different than their preconceptions. They did not ride in on a white horse, but a Lord who came in great humility, the Lord Jesus Christ, the most beautiful, wonderful Savior we could possibly imagine. We find out in the New Covenant that God uses the foolish things, the small things. He's working in ways that we can never imagine. What's the point of all this? Trust the God of Israel, who has provided for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ through a plan we could have never conceived. Trust him. Life is hard. In your discouragement, in your despondency, trust in his provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we don't have enough time to mine all the riches of this text. It is incredible how all of these parts relate to the whole. How even here, this passage prepares us for the person and work, the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would use our little church, our, our small church, to preach your gospel and to be faithful in gospel ministry. Father, we pray that you would use Providence Presbyterian Church to draw people to yourself. Father, as we lift high the person and work of Jesus, the person that the world thinks is so foolish and irrelevant, as we preach Christ, draw our hearts to him, change us, mold us, sanctify us, encourage us. Father, as difficult things happen in our lives, Holy Spirit, keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In his matchless name we pray, amen.